happy Friday. It feels this week as if Friday did not come a day too soon. The day after uh, Joe Biden's really awful, uh, terrible, no good uh, Thursday. I, I know people are pushing back. So well, it wasn't just Joe Biden's uh, bad Thursday. It was America's bad Thursday. Well, yes, but it did feel like the perfect storm of awfulness for Joe Biden. Uh, he, he not only, of course, had the setback in the Supreme Court, the voting rights push ended pretty much in the same place as the Build Back Better push. They're just not going to be able to break the filibuster. The poll numbers are awful. Maybe Quinnipiac is an outlier, but uh, there's not a lot of uh, bright spots out there. The reviews of his big voting rights speech in Georgia are, how can I put this, uh, ghastly, which we're going to talk about. And they're coming up to the first anniversary of his presidency. I think it's next Thursday. And I would say that my cursory review of the punditry would suggest that most of what's being written right now is uh, uniformly brutal. But but other than that, uh, Mr. President, how was how was your Thursday? So welcome back to our good friend, uh, David French. David, how are you? I'm doing well, Charlie. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, you got a you had a better day yesterday than than the president. No, <laughs> this is one of those days. I think I mentioned to you where I, there's no chance that we're going to cover everything I want to talk about with you, and it, it's hard to decide what do we talk about first. We talk about the charges of seditious conspiracy against the Oath Keepers, the Supreme Court decision, the voting rights. It, it's it's hard to know where to start on a day like this. Yeah, yesterday was quite the news day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no question about it. And there was a little something, and it was kind of a quite the news day in the sense of it was so symbolic and multiple fronts of the dysfunction of our politics. You yeah. know, here you had one of the most predictable sort of political defeats. So many of us saw this political defeat for Biden on the voting rights uh, bill from miles away. I mean, saw it just coming from miles away. And at some point, people need to learn that you're not going to Twitter shame Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin into getting rid of the filibuster. And it, it feels like an awful lot of strategy is built around the idea that if finally, if yeah. we browbeat them enough, then they'll they'll cave. If we just followed Kirsten Cinema into more bathrooms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really. See, this is, yeah. this is an interesting point that you're making. Um, you know, it, it all came as a shock, but it shouldn't have. This was so incredibly uh, predictable. There have been some people at in 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 the pundit world have been pointing out that that Kirsten Cinema has said the same thing over and over and oh. over and over again. And Joe Manchin has said the same thing over and over. Whatever you feel about filibuster, don't 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 DM me about all of this. They're, they're, this was like Groundhog Day. And so she comes out and says, hey, by the way, as I told you 150 times before, and everybody's like, wow, this is how did this happen? How did they not see this coming? I mean, this should not have surprised anyone. Well, you know, I think part of, and I've I've actually wondered about this and I've tried to think about this for a while, Charlie. Why is it that if somebody says no 99 times, you, you feel any sense of right. confidence that the 100th time they're going to say yes. And, and I think part of it is actually there is a there is a pattern if you're if your life is on Twitter, if you are focused on sort of the social media dynamics of how social media shaming has worked in the past that you have seen big corporations change course because of a 24-hour bad news cycle on Twitter, or you've seen people lose jobs because of Twitter, or you've seen, you've seen shaming work in certain circumstances. 
I think it leads a certain kind of activist to think, well, we just if we just shame hard enough, then people will will yield. But what this neglects right. is there's an entire class of Americans who don't really care about what happens on social media. That's not how they dictate their life. And these people happen to be actually maybe more in touch with the actual electorate. And that, I think, is you know a yeah. key insight that people on both parties need to realize is that this dynamic, this conversation that's happening online is quite disconnected from the conversation that a majority of Americans have. No, and I think you're seeing this play out now in our politics where what what the White House is talking about, what I think many progressives are focusing on, and what is actually happening in much of the rest of the country is they're very, very different things. But also I think what yesterday illustrated was the problems of unrealistic expectations, of overpromising yeah. all of this rhetoric about the next FDR, the next LBJ, when it was like, hey, guys, you don't have those kinds of majorities. You have what, you know, you can only lose three votes in the House. It's 50-50 in the Senate. OK, there's a lot you can accomplish. But but suddenly it was like we're, we want it all. We want these big grab bag bills with all kinds of things that were stuffed in and no Republican would sign on. I'm not defending all the Republicans, but there, there was that that sense of of overreach that then comes up against the reality of mathematics. Yes. Yeah. And you, and, and there's an earth two here. Yeah. Uh, and, and the earth two is that imagine you don't overpromise and you say, you know, look, in my first term, what I want to do is a coronavirus or my first year in office, what I want to get done is a coronavirus relief package and a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Yeah. And you say that that's, an agenda. I mean, say what you want. I mean, Trump, when he had the House and the Senate, he didn't get an infrastructure bill. I mean, it became a long-running joke. It's a, it's always infrastructure week. And if Biden could end the year and he say, look, he said, look, I, I got us a massive coronavirus relief package. I got us an infrastructure bill, something Trump was never able to accomplish. That was year one. That's a good year. Legislatively, I mean, he'd still have all of the problems of, you know, inflation and the virus sort of roaring back into public life. But those are issues that, you know, from a legislative standpoint, that's a, that's a healthy, ambitious agenda. I mean, there's nothing about that that anyone, if you're a Democrat, I'm not a Democrat, but if you're a Democrat, there's nothing to be ashamed about, about the ending this year, about what you've achieved. Right. But if it's only 20% of what you've promised or what you've hoped for, then there's this sort of sense of crushing disappointment. But why why would you have that expectation? I mean, you had yeah. a 50-50 Senate and two of the senators are Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, and they were never going for this. Well, never. and it was not just them. This was the other thing. Yeah. Is the reporting was quite consistent that they may have been the most uh, you know, prominent anti-changing of the filibuster against the filibuster, but there were certainly others, including you know Mark Kelly in, in in Arizona. So this was just never going to happen, and it's kind of a, you know, this is just a perfect illustration of this. So okay, I, among the things, David, I wanted to talk to you about was your really interesting um, newsletter. You know, uh, for people who haven't uh, picked up on this, uh, you not only write for the Dispatch, but you're also a contributing writer at the Atlantic and the author of the Third Rail newsletter, which is really outstanding. And you wrote about anti-anti-racism for people who are yeah. you know following along at home. There's racism. Then there's the big anti-racism woke movement. 
And then there is this big push on the right, anti-anti-racism, which, as you point out, can sometimes sound a little racist. And, you know, part of this is, you know, wrapped up with the whole uh, campaign against critical race theory and the pushback against this. Did you see the story out of Virginia this morning, though, David? No, I, I had I haven't seen it. OK, so one of the legislators is proposing new reforms of the social studies uh, curriculum. Oh, my. And, and so one of the things that they are going to require is that in the future social studies curriculum, I'm going to read this verbatim because I think you'll enjoy it. OK, this is my this is my Friday gift to you, David. Oh, my. Okay. I can't so, wait to hear um, Among the things that that students in Virginia, according to these these legislators, must read. The founding documents of the United States, including the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, the Federalist Papers, including essays 10 and 15. So good so far, right? Yeah. Excerpts from Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America and, wait for it, the first debate between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and the writings of the founding fathers. So the Lincoln-Douglass debates, the famous Lincoln-Douglass debates between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. What? What? <laughs> it's like, what can go wrong with this? Now, I'm sorry, for some of our listeners, what are you talking about? Okay, Lincoln Douglas was Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. Okay, it was yeah. not Frederick Douglas. That's a different Douglas. <laughs> they, they're not even spelled the same way. But this is the, the, okay, people, this is why having politicians play culture war with the curriculum might end badly. Just an example of that. Well, they do <laughs> illustrate the deficiencies of the educational system. <laughs> it, it would. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm, I'm searching for just sort of a little gem to you know, get through today. Okay, so let me tell you what I really liked about your newsletter on the rights rules of rhetoric uh, about race. The and and you and you talk about what these rhetorical r rules are now, and I, I think you got exactly right. You know, number one, you trigger the libs, make them super angry, which yep. you know tells you it worked. Never give an inch to the libs in the face of their outrage; otherwise, you're weak. Never, never apologize. Never, never, never forget that the left is completely evil and satanic and requires a firm response. So. There, you're, you're seeing this, you know, with Tucker Carlson pushing white supremacist, you know, you know, anti-Semitic replacement theory or this professor Amy Wax at Penn, who's yeah. arguing that we should have less Asian immigrants because they vote for Democrats. And since I hate Democrats, we need more white people rather than I mean, stuff like this. This is it. It, it has become its own dynamic where yeah. they engage in this rhetoric that that five minutes ago we would have recognized as racist, but they think it's it's the way to push back against. And, and I know this sounds confusing, but this is anti-anti-racism that comes full circle to people like a professor at Penn or Tucker Carlson or others engaging in really provocative racist rhetoric. I mean, that's right. kind of your, you know. And just to give you a sense of it. So, you know, for example, um, Amy Wax, uh, a couple of years ago at the National Conservatism Conference, is, and a lot of this comes up in the context of immigration, was pushing back on, it was saying our, our immigration policy needs to be really focused on culture so that people come into the U.S. who share our culture. And she says this, embracing cultural distance, cultural distance nationalism means, in effect, taking the position that our country will be better off with more whites and fewer non-whites. Huh. Okay. Um, subtle, then, subtle. Yeah. And then 
just a couple of weeks ago or a week or so ago, um, she says, I don't know the answer. Maybe it's just that Democrats love open borders and Asians want more Asians here. Perhaps they are mesmerized by the feel-good cult of diversity. I don't know the answer, but as long as most Asians support Democrats and help to advance their positions, I think the United States is better off with fewer Asians and less Asian immigration. Huh. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about that is in a healthy movement, in a healthy movement, you can say, you know what? I think labeling people ideologically by race or culturally by race is a very bad idea. And I think that I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with that. Or Tucker Carlson saying the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. It's easy to say that's wrong. That is wrong. I want no part of that rhetoric. That is fundamentally wrong. And, and to argue and to explain why it's wrong, that's an easy thing to do. But it's not easy on the right anymore because of these rules. And the right loves it when people become angry. So this is triggering the libs. And even if, and this is a very important thing for people to understand who sort of aren't in this world, a lot of people don't like Tucker's rhetoric on the right. A lot of people don't like Amy Wax's rhetoric on the right. And others like them. I just pulled them out as examples. There's a lot of this stuff out there. They don't like the rhetoric. But because the left is so evil in their words, right. and they'll use words like satanic and demonic and all of that, then you have to keep your misgivings to yourself. If you have misgivings, you have to keep them to yourself because otherwise you're giving them some ammunition. You're giving them more, uh, uh, you know, some cultural purchase and you're giving them inches and you can't give them an inch. And so even if you have private misgivings, which Charlie, you and I know right. throughout the entire Trump administration, there were lots of Republicans who would share with us their misgivings and never do it publicly. Well, and this is also the tragedy because I, I do think that there has been, you know, over the last several years, well, I'm mean, longer than that, but, but certainly over the last a, a couple of years after the death of George Floyd, there are people who want to rethink. Um, America's racial legacy, rethink right. questions of social justice, you know, look at our history, what we taught, what we we dropped off. Um, and, you know, you've written about this. We've talked about this before. But the process that you're describing shuts down any yes. sort of introspection like that on the right. And, you know, I, I understand there's some people on the left who say, well, you guys have always been racist. But the reality is that there has always been in Republican circles, in conservative circles, a willingness, at least by some people, to say, okay, we got this wrong in the past. How can we recalibrate our approaches to this? And it was a time when Paul Ryan talked about this a lot, you know, in the distant mists of time. You know, Jack Kemp was talking about yes. this. You know, George W. Bush, who's got a mixed record on all of this. But now it's gone. You can't talk about it anymore. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you brought up some of those names, Charlie, because the part of the conservative movement that I grew up in, I remember being in law school and sitting in a room with Jack Kemp for two hours while, and just in front of a small group of law students and other interested students, he waxed eloquent for two hours about all the ways in which conservatives have gotten things wrong on the matter of race, but how conservative ideas can get a lot of things right. And how this is a time to sort of correct for 
some of the mistakes of the great society um, and some of the ways in which liberal policy has actually been harmful for marginalized communities. And there are ways that conservative policies can be better for marginalized communities. And what we really need to do is be ambassadors for these policies that are going to go a long way, hopefully, towards ameliorating a lot of historical injustice. And that was, you know, Jack Kemp, you know, almost 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. And there was a strain of conservatism. Mm -hmm. And I remember it because I was in those rooms where people were thinking and talking, how do we, how can we become ambassadors to communities that have not traditionally been part of the conservative movement? Because we think that these ideas that we have are good ideas for uniting Americans and correcting and righting historical wrongs. And and then now, if you talk like that, you'll be called woke or a cultural Marxist. Like the very idea of opening yourself up to saying, look, there's there are le- legacies of historical harm that have been inflicted, and, uh, uh, massive historical harm been inflicted, and communities still suffer the effects of that. We should acknowledge that and then present ideas as to how practically we can change some of those dynamics. And if you if you even say that, you're yeah. called woke. You they no, say you believe true. in CRT. I mean, it's it's really remarkable because the the goal, again, going back to these rules of rhetoric, you gotta provoke, you gotta create outrage, you gotta create anger. And if you get a backlash, great, then you can cry cancel culture and you can adopt that that victim mindset. It it's it's gotten incredibly toxic and people who want to have a real conversation about race now often don't know where to go. Well, that's right. And, and, and this is part of the complication because, you know, anti-anti-racism is a reaction against, you know, anti-racism, which, which of course is a reaction to racism. And, <laughs> and, but, but, you know, some of the, I was, I was thinking about this this morning before we, we, we started, I don't know whether, whether you've seen, there's a little bit of buzz about, you know, NPR doing a, a deep dive into the triggering effects of, of fitness, including, you know, the need to decolonize fitness. I don't need to get right. into it, but it's like, oh, there gosh. are these moments when you hear that sort of thing and you start rolling your eyes or uh, there was some really interesting, I, I thought, uh, essay in the New York Times the other day, or maybe it's today. Do I have to read my child anti-racism books even when they're really bad? And it was just yeah. sort of like this person kind of got a little bit, you know, defensive about it, saying, you know, I want my child to grow up not to be a racist, but but am I really required to read them these really turgid tones like Kendi's book, you know, The Anti-Racist Child, which is basically not a story, it's just kind of a screed. It's very specifically that Kendi, big CRT guy, you know, says it's not enough to teach your kids, you know, anti-racist behavior. They must be deprogrammed from this prejudice and you have to have explicit early explicit intervention. So he's written this book called anti-racist baby. And, you know, you open this up and, you know, I mean, look, look, I'm sorry. Most kids that I know, you know, want to read about dinosaurs and, you know, and elephants to talk and stuff like that. And you open up, you know, anti-racist baby and anti-racist baby is bred, not born. Anti-racist <laughs> baby is raised to make society transform. And, and this person's writing this, like, do I really have to read this to my kids? And, and you can understand. So this is part of also part of the problem that there are people who are really put off by the in your face. And no matter what you say, it's not going to be the right answer. Right. Right. So. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is we're, we're in this world where 
there are some people, for example, you know, you'll find, you'll hear the stories about, say, there's a second grade curriculum in some city somewhere where young elementary kids are being taught that there's a problem with whiteness. And you're saying, what? Wait a minute. Uh, that doesn't seem right. And then, so then somebody like down the street from me here in Franklin, Tennessee, where I live, the anti-woke folks have organized and they're trying and they've filed an actual complaint under Tennessee's anti-CRT law to get rid of, objecting to literally the Norman Rockwell painting of yep. Ruby Bridges desegregating right. public schools. I mean, this courageous little kid having having to have police protection to desegregate schools. And then her book, Ruby Bridges Goes to School, they're objecting to that. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. We don't, it, it's it's like the the way the right-left binary is, is uh, this right-left binary is doing is it's pushing people into saying, well, if there's extremism on one side, the only answer to extremism is a counter, is an opposing extremism. Right. And that's just not the way our discourse should work. I mean, it's the way our discourse is going. Most people are not there. And, right. and it's, it, it's um, so I, I feel like I need to take a really like deep breath. And this is where I would insert a, you know, commercial because, because I want to switch gears a little bit, although this relates to all of this. It took me, I, I'm going to confess, it took me about 24 hours to catch up to Joe Biden's speech on voting rights and race down in right. Georgia. Uh, I thought that his speech last week um, on the anniversary of January 6th, where he called out President Trump, was very forceful, almost not Biden-like. I thought it mm -hmm. was really good. I thought it was, uh, you know, perhaps, I, I, I just thought it was effective. And I don't know whether people in the White House said, hey, see, since that was effective, let's go with these really hard-hitting, uh, you know, hair-on-fire uh, speeches and so he goes down and he's and he's making the pitch for voting rights, despite the clear political problems that played out over the next 48 hours. Stacey Abrams had a schedule conflict, maybe because <laughs> right. she was savvy enough to know that this isn't going anywhere. But Biden held nothing back. And let me just play a small clip and then get your reaction to what Biden uh, said and and why the reaction has been so negative to it. This was Joe Biden in in uh, in Georgia earlier this week. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the side on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? <sighs> David French. Oh, man. Your thoughts? Well, you know, let me just say this. That rhetoric from him doesn't surprise me because I can remember a 2012 campaign where, and, and when it comes to these racial issues, Biden has a tendency to do this, where, remember, of the Romney-Ryan ticket, again, I'm going to repeat that, the Romney-Ryan ticket, he said, they're going to put you all back in chains. Yeah. He has done this before. So he's done this before. He's used this really inflammatory rhetoric. And look, words have no meaning if you're going to compare the voting regime in Georgia that exists in 2021 and 20, now 2022 to Jim Crow, okay? Words have no meaning if you're going to compare the Georgia voting laws in 2022 to Jefferson Davis, okay? That's 
that's just that rhetoric is in in my view way out of bounds now if you want to say that politician x or y who's running basically on the platform of uh, of governor kemp in georgia wasn't strong enough on trying to steal the election from joe biden and you want to say this person believe try, has has tried to upend american democracy for these reasons go for it that's the virtue of the January 6th speech because he was talking about specific people and specific actions and condemning them on their own terms based on what they did. And look, because the, the real problem here on the voting issue isn't ballot access. That's not the issue. The issue is ballot counting. That's the issue. That's the pressure point in American totally democracy right. right now. And And that's where we have to be focusing our efforts. But to call completely normal and conventional voting laws in Georgia and compare them to Jim Crow, to compare the people who support them to Jefferson Davis. Are you kidding me? Well, and this I mean, is why I think it was, it was, you know, people reacted to that. I mean, David Ignatius is no conservative. He's writing for the Washington yeah. Post. And he said, it sticks in my craw to quote Mitch McConnell, you know, who's often been a wrecker in our national politics, BAD. He had it right when he said that Biden was elected with a mandate to bridge a divided, divided country, lower the temperature, dial down the perpetual era of crisis in our politics. Yep. And that speech was not it. you know. And yeah. again, I, I don't always agree with Peggy Noonan, but she knows speeches. And she said the speech was aggressive and temperate, not only in, offensive, but meant to offend. And you've made a distinction that I, I is so important. There is, a, look, I do think there's an existential crisis uh, for democracy, but it does it, it, that the the nature of the crisis is the counting of the votes. It's what happened on January sixth. The existential crisis to democracy is not uh, the fate of absentee ballot drop boxes, right? Or or the number of hours of early voting. Look, there are legitimate questions that can be raised about ballot access, but the reality is that right now, in even in the states that have you know, pass these, you know, voter suppression laws, there's more easier access to the ballot box than there was, say, in 2008 and 2012 when Barack yes. Obama was elected president. In fact, yeah. in places like Georgia, it's easier to vote than in some of the, the some of the blue states like Delaware yeah. and in and, and New York. And it's like, people, can we put this in perspective? And there is a legitimate argument about whether or not you wanted to pass these sort of mega pieces of legislation that would have the federal government completely override local election laws in, in every one of the 50 states. And so there are, believe it or not, you may not agree with them, but there are, um, you know, principled objections to federalizing all of that. I mean, like I understand the debate and I probably would have voted for the John Lewis Act but to suggest that you're George Wallace or you're Jefferson Davis if you disagree about that piece of legislation is like, I mean, I, they, one of my first reactions was if if I had seen this on one of the, um, you know, week, weekend um, MSNBC shows where you have somebody, uh, one of the panelists with a hair on fire over the top, um, you know, emotional nervous breakdown screed, you know, I, you know, I would have thought, you know, wow, that's way over the top. Right. But right. but basically somebody said, hey, Mr. President, you should say stuff like this. Right. You should, you know, you should say, you know, that 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 these, you know, issues about whether or not you can, I don't know, you know, vote, vote on, you know, at, at seven o'clock as opposed to eight o'clock on 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 the 10th Monday before the election. 
That's not the problem. So that's why that speech just, it, I mean, the Georgia and, and, law. And it, and it didn't work. You know, no, so. no. I mean, the Georgia law expanded early voting to 17 days. I mean, it 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 did shorten the amount of time to get an absentee t- ballot, right. but it was to 67 days prior to the election. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, so this is the kind of thing where you cannot in any world say that that is comparable to Jim Crow or no. comparable to the Confederacy. You just now because and, and the, the problem, though, Charlie. So one, there's two problems. One problem. Number one is that rhetoric was way, way, way over the top. Problem number two is it's locating the problem in the wrong place. There is a threat to American democracy. We right. saw it in 2020 and going into January 6, 2021. We know what it is. It is the pressure being placed on how the vote is counted and certified. And this is where this Electoral Count Act reform is so incredibly important because that the the this <laughs> I would I would urge everyone to just Google Electoral Count Act and read it, and you will be appalled. It is a, a single paragraph. The key provision is a single paragraph that's more than 800 words. I think about three to 400 words of that are one single unbroken sentence where you, you get what they're trying to do, but there's a lot of ambiguity in it. And that's where John Eastman tried to drive a coup through right. the ambiguity. And it is a matter of urgent national necessity that we fix that act. I mean, literally, it could be the difference between another or a worse January 6th and a smooth transition of power. That's how important this is. Well, see, this is what's frustrating to me is that all of this overheated rhetoric is about bills that do not actually address that threat, the the coup. Uh, They would not, they don't address what almost happened uh, on January 6th, and they they don't Trump-proof the next election. And and that's that disconnect for people who think that we're not taking this threat seriously. Look, I also understand that one of the other, you know, subtexts of this whole debate is that many of the legislatures who are passing these bills are are, are doing so, uh, you know, perhaps influenced by the big lie. And and so that that maybe their motives are not clear. But then when you had the president, you know, turn it around and suggest that if you were a member of Congress and you didn't vote for the these, you know, sweeping federal elections bill that somehow, you know, you had sinister racist inclinations. That's what I I think there was the pushback. And it was interesting that it was Mitt Romney. And I know that you commented on them. I mean, Mitt Romney. Um, you know, took umbrage. He said, you know, that, that Biden was accusing his colleagues of, of, of being racist and, you know, and said that this is the kind of thing that, that Trump used to do, which, of course, is like, whoa, those are fighting words. And then Jen Psaki, the press secretary, was asked to respond to Romney's comments. And she said, I know there's been a lot of claims about the offensive nature of the speech yesterday, which is hilarious on many levels, given how many people sat silently over the last four years for the former president. So, David, as you pointed out, (laughs) Mitt Romney voted twice to convict Donald Trump. Mitt Romney did not sit silently for the four years. You can say that about a lot of other Republicans, but but no, no. And and look, I mean, there are there are legitimate constitutional questions about federalizing the extent to which the federal government can exercise control over the presidential election. That sounds weird to say that, uh, unless you're sort of familiar with the constitutional structure, but the, the presidential election is really a series of 50 state elections. Yeah. And the constitution specifies that 
those are elections are carried out in a manner dictated by the state legislature. And so there are limits to federal control over presidential elections. And that's a legitimate constitutional argument. It is. Um, you may not want it to be, but it is a it legitimate is. constitutional argument. Well, speaking and, of these, the, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just yeah, going to yeah. say, and, and the, the fact that people are raising that constitutional objection is not evidence of their Jim Crowness. It, no, exactly. Okay. Now, speaking of the actual existential threat to democracy, <laughs> uh, your, your, your thoughts about the decision yesterday by the Department of Justice to file charges of seditious conspiracy against uh, Stuart Rhodes and, uh, and 10 others, um, members of the Oath Keepers. This is the first time that we've seen that law applied uh, regarding January 6th. And it's, a, it's relatively um, rare in American history to, uh, to uh, charge people with sedition. So your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I read the indictment. I thought it was, of course, you know, you you have to wait for a trial and, and the proof and a defense to, you know, to, to opine authoritatively. But it was a very compelling indictment that the DOJ certainly alleged conduct that met the elements of the crime. And it's been a talking point on the right for a while. Why are you using the term insurrection or sedition when nobody's been charged with sedition or seditious conspiracy? And one of the answers to that is this is a crime that's intentionally pretty hard to prove. I mean, in a free society, you have a lot of ability to argue and organize against the government. And so it's intentionally pretty darn hard to prove seditious conspiracy. And so therefore, there's a lot of easier pathways to convict participants in January 6th. But this indictment certainly alleges conduct that flat out matches the elements of the statute. And if they can prove this at trial, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a valid charge. And, and the bottom line is, and, and people really object to the language of coup or, mm -hmm. or, um, insurrection. insurrection. Yeah. But the bottom line is this, there was an, and, and we cannot look at January 6th in isolation. There was an organized effort that culminated in January 6th that was multi-pronged with an element in the Trump White House, including Trump himself, outside groups like the Oath Keepers that were all coming together on January 6th with a goal to put so intense pressure on the Vice President of the United States to take one or two actions that if he did, if he had done them, if he had said yes, would have fundamentally destabilized the United States of America to a, create a crisis like we haven't seen since 1861. And, and now we're forced finding out, we, 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 we learned some time ago about the Eastman memo suggesting that he do that. And, and now we're finding about the number of states that actually forged these yeah. certificates of electors. They actually forged papers uh, for electors. And, and, and clearly that was designed to in, in, induce Mike Pence to say, I'm going to count these as opposed to to those. I mean, that's right. I, I mean, is there any legal you know, are there going to be any legal consequences for forging those kinds of election documents? I mean, you know, we, we've talked a lot about voter fraud. This strikes me as electoral voter fraud writ large. Yeah, yeah. There, you know, it's a, that's a really interesting mm -hmm. question, Charlie. And I actually took a look at this from a legal perspective around the Trump effort to try to sway the count of the vote in Georgia. And there are actually some pretty broad civil rights, criminal civil rights laws that could come into play here. And the interesting question to me, 
because American civil rights law is pretty broadly drafted and pretty broadly drawn. And you've seen that in prosecutions around the country of people at much lower levels. And so the issue is here, what if these broad statutes would apply to the, a former president of the United States, but the statutes themselves, because, because they're so broad, it's not like you're going to be able to point to a very specific case that says Trump's actions match exactly what happened in Smith v. Jones, where the, uh, the DOJ prosecuted somebody. Because in many ways, this sort of top-down conspiracy to uh, undo an election, I don't know of its precedent. It's It doesn't yeah. have a precedent. And so do some of these civil rights statutes or criminal statutes apply on their face? I think so. But you're going to have to nail down some facts here, and you're going to have to construct a provable narrative that fits broadly within precedent before you can bring an indictment of a former president. and and. The sad thing in Charlie is this is what happens when all norms of behavior are gone. At some level, it's very hard to draft laws and to and to enforce laws on somebody of the stature of a president, he was president at the time, or a former president. We has a constituency as vast and angry as he has, that it is it becomes very difficult as a practical matter to enforce the law on this individual. And I and and one of the things I've been beating the drum on since the beginning of the Trump presidency is we can't we have to fight through this and apply the law anyway. Mm -hmm. We have to, but we have to also acknowledge that that is a that's a battle because we can't treat our presidents or former presidents as kings. We have to apply the law to them, but we also have to understand in the effort to apply the law it. Can you imagine what the right will do with a criminal indictment against Trump? Oh, I can very easily imagine it. I mean, yeah. it will it will fire everything up. Every everything we're talking about now, you know, times ten. You know, speaking of which, that the presidents are not kings and no one's above the law. That it was an interesting exchange uh, that I know that uh, you were paying attention to. With it was a judge Meta in one of the lawsuits against uh, Trump was questioning Trump's lawyers who appeared to be suggesting that the president enjoyed absolute immunity for everything he said. And at one point, the judge said, so really, is there are there any exceptions to the immunity? Is, is the president allowed to say anything, have any conversation, any speech? And Trump's lawyers appeared to be saying, yeah, no, absolutely, which is as close as you're going to see, I, at least as a, as a non-lawyer, as a layperson, to someone saying, you know, yes, the president is actually completely immune from the law. He is he is above the law. What what, what was your reaction to that uh, that colloquy? I mean, it's obvious to me that what's happening is that the president is engaged in what you call lawfare. Okay, mm -hmm. so lawfare is sort of a broad catch-all term where you're abusing legal process in a manner designed to delay or forestall legal consequences. Mm -hmm. And so lawfare is, you know, it's, it's, it manifests itself in multiple different ways in American society. For example, frivolous defamation litigation, which is sort of um, trying to intimidate journalists with defamation lawsuits, trying to drain the, you know, drain a media organization or media entity of resources and defending itself. Um, there, there's just many different ways in which lawfare manifests itself. I mean, Bill Clinton was very adept at lawfare. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember how he uh, erected about, he made about as many privilege 
claims as a human being could possibly make to try to forestall the Lewinsky investigation. It's lawfare is what it is. It's, it's a, it's a abusive legal process that is designed to forestall legal consequences. And th- this is fundamentally what, uh, uh, that's a big part of the Trump strategy. A lot of the election contests were lawfare. A, le- the, a lot of the election lawsuits were lawfare. It's again, abusive legal process. It's one of the reasons why, for example, Sidney Powell has been sanctioned. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of this, you have to just see it for what it is. So in the time that we have left, I, since I have you on, I wanted to get your take on the Supreme Court decision on the coronavirus mandates. Um, the court ruled 6-3 to throw out the mandates aimed at private businesses, the really broad sweeping mandate. But then they the justices voted 5-4 to uphold the Biden administration mandate for healthcare workers and facilities that receive any federal money. And the the difference between the two decisions, at least in terms of the voting, was Justices Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, who voted against the Biden administration's sweeping mandate, switched and voted for to uphold the mandate for healthcare workers. I don't know whether you caught this. Tucker Carlson yeah. and many others on the right are very unhappy with Brett Kavanaugh voting to uphold the health care vaccine mandate. And this is what Tucker Carlson said last night about Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, with no with no help from Brett Kavanaugh, I notice. Cringing little liberal. Yeah, um, sorry, I'm not right. going to ask yeah. you to respond to that. I'll ask you to respond to that. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, cringing little liberal now. Who knew? I, it's absurd. It's absurd. <laughs> you know, it, it's part of this little thing that these people do where if I disagree with you, it's not that that there's a legitimate debate to be had over the scope of the administrative law and the Constitution. It's that I'm strong and you're weak. Mm-hmm. If you disagree with me, you're just weak. You're cringing. You're sniveling. You're weak. Uh, because my true my position is so self-evidently true that apparently weakness is the only explanation for disagreement. I mean, it's it's a it's a game that they play. It's a common game on the right right now to where not only are they right that they're they're right and they're strong. And they're so obviously right that you have to be weak to oppose them. It's just, it's a joke. Look, these cases are easy to understand the outcome. They were, su- the outcome is super predictable. We, on my legal podcast I have with Sarah Isger called Advisory Opinions, we we predicted this. <laughs> and it's explained in two sentences. And you can, you can just lay it out in two sentences. There were two sentences in the CMS. This is the healthcare worker mandate case where, Roberts and Kavanaugh voted with the three liberal justices to uphold the the, um, healthcare worker mandate. Sentence number one, the challenges posed by global pandemic do not allow a federal agency to exercise power that Congress has not conferred upon it. That's the OSHA outcome. As the majority pointed out in OSHA, OSHA doesn't give the, OSHA grants uh, the agency the authority to regulate um, health and safety risks that are fundamentally arising out of the workplace, mm-hmm. not not hmm. that exist sort of in general in the society, yeah. and yeah, but fundamentally arise out of the workplace, and that's not COVID. Now there are circumstances, as the majority said, where the workplace would enhance the risk of COVID. So they, for example, they talked about like a meat packing plant, but the OSHA regulation is a sort of a shotgun approach to all companies a hundred or over with some very limited exceptions. And that includes circumstances where, where the COVID threat isn't truly arising out of the workplace. So that's sentence one. Here's sentence two, and this is the CMS case. At the same time, 
Such unprecedented circumstances, again, referring to the pandemic, provide no grounds for limiting the exercise of authorities the agency has long been recognized to have. So that's CMS. CMS has always had a high degree of regulatory authority over health facilities receiving Medicare and Medicaid funding. You know, going back to like how how much do you wash your hands, what kind, you know, there's an enormous degree of regulatory authority to control the spread of infection and, and diseases in healthcare facilities. This is something that is a very traditional aspect of CMS regulatory authority. And what the Supreme Court said is, we're not going to, in the middle of a pandemic, roll that back. We're not going to, in a pandemic, roll that back. So no expansion of OSA authority and no contraction of, of the CMS. of the Center for Medicare and, and Medicaid Services Correct. authority. I guess, you know, the one part that, again, I am not the constitutional scholar here on this podcast today, you are, but it, it did strike, I, I had a hard time kind of following the logic of, of the majority on the OSHA case, because I, although I think you've explained it, that basically the agency can only regulate what is in the workplace and specific to the workplace. And because COVID spreads in and out of the workplace, it falls outside of its authority, which I don't know, it seemed like they were kind of struggling to come up with that distinction. Well, you know, the, look at it this way. So OSHA traditionally, let, let's use an example of like, say, welding. Okay. So if you're a welder, there are specific dangers that arise from welding. You know, one of them, a danger to your eyes, and there's right. got to be extreme tinting of the glass. And so there, that's something that arises from the workplace. Things that are just sort of a consequence of being alive today, <laughs> of interacting with human beings, that is not something that is arising from the workplace. However, here's a difference. What if, Charlie, you're in a circumstance where the job itself enhances the risk mm -hmm. in the sense beyond the normal background risk of living? Let's say, use the meatpacking example. You right are required by the job to be in close quarters with other people for an entire eight-hour shift. There's no way around that. Well, then what's happened is that job has enhanced the risk. The job enhances the background risk. So that's a risk arising from the job. But if you're in a, in a job where there is no enhanced risk, um, then it's not the, the background risk of catching the flu or a cold or you name it, is not originating in the job or from the job. And so that's the distinction. So does that mean that they could perhaps, OSHA could come back with a narrower mandate for employees who work in those particular, you know, crowded, cramped uh, environments? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I think the court's majority explicit, explicitly left that, op, that open because it said in there, it distinguished between, say, somebody who's a lifeguard and someone who works at a meatpacking plant. Um, and so there are big distinctions in, in between, there are lots of distinctions between different kinds of workplaces. And one of the big beefs that the Supreme Court had with the vaccine mandate was it really mm. didn't draw those distinctions very well. Okay, so in the few minutes we have left, Craig Melvin from NBC sat down with Vice President Kamala Harris and asked whether or not uh, it was time for the Biden administration to change its strategy. Um, in case you have not heard this soundbite, it's already become kind of an instant classic. Um, I want to get your your take on uh, the vice president's response uh, on the other side of this, about 30 seconds. Does the administration say, you know what, this strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former 
administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. Oh, oh man. Why is she so bad at this? I mean, no. do you remember when you were in seventh grade and you, and you had to do a book report and you hadn't read the book and you had to, like, bullshit your way through it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, oh, <laughs> man. You know, and the, the thing that's tragic about that is that's exactly the kind of question you should be prepped for. Oh, yeah. You know, that, hey, um, Madam Vice President, you're going to probably be asked about, do we need to make big changes? What's the answer to that? You know, and that's the kind of thing that you you need to be prepped for and you need to have an answer for. And even if it's a typical politician answer where you kind of brush it off and pivot to talking points sort of as a last resort. But yeah, that was, you know, it's funny, Charlie, I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes I had trouble watching The Office because I would feel embarrassed for Michael oh, Scott. Right. That was a Michael <laughs> Scott moment. I, I, people have done a, a, they've, they've done a mashup of him where, where he's just sort of rambling and going on. And then he quotes Wayne Gretzky and stuff like that. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, oh, no, that's, you know, I was thinking of, of Veep, you know, to some of the, the, oh, the, yeah, way, yeah. the way in which sometimes it's difficult for satirical political dramas to catch up with the reality. But you, you mentioned prepping and there's been some criticism of, uh, of the vice president for, you know, not you know, listening to her staff who are prepping her on all of this. And and there have been all those stories. And you, one would have thought that that perhaps that would have, you know, edged her into, OK, I'm being criticized for this. This is what people are watching me for. And yet. Clearly, she either hadn't been prepped or was prepped and just, I don't know. And it was, and it yeah. was, as you point out, a, a softball question from Craig Melvin. There are some people going, why would Craig Melvin do that? Why would the brother do that to Kamala Harris? He's doing his job. He's asking her a basic question. And I don't know. So that was, yeah. that, that, I mean, that, completely- that closes the administration's pretty awful week. Yeah. And it was a completely fair question, especially when you've objectively been dealt a number of political and legal defeats, it is, and it's a completely fair question to say, hey, do you want to make a change here? David French, thank you so much for coming back on. You can read uh, David's newsletter um, at The Atlantic. He's the author of the Third Rail newsletter, of course, uh, his his writing at uh, The Dispatch and also co-hosts a couple of podcasts. You've become kind of a podcast uh, pro, haven't you, David? Charlie, we're just all in, in your shadow. Uh, no, no, you know what though? So here's the thing is in the next year, every American will get <laughs> Omicron and every American will have their own podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's This Weekend's uh, Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>